Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. John chapter 19. I want to talk to you this morning about the death of God. The death of God. And I just want to set the sermon up for you a little bit. I'm going to do more reading of the text today uh, than I might typically do in a sermon simply because I want to lean more heavily upon John's record and the narrative that he records for us in the text. And so just, to, just so you know, following along, whether you're on a phone or an iPad or, or in a hard copy, um, um, keep it handy because we will refer to it often. And I want to start with a question. I like questions. They help me kind of focus my mind. And I hope this is a question that's familiar to many of you. But what I want to begin by asking you this morning is this. What compels you? What compels you? What is it that captures your life in such a way in every faculty of it? to move you to act or to live the way in which you live. What compels you? What we're talking about today, this is the compelling love of every Christ follower's life in the death of God. Jesus died as God so those who believe in his name would receive eternal life in him. And friends, today I want you to see that we're looking at this truth directly from the historical record of John, the author of his gospel. Let's go to verse 1 and see that Jesus is mocked and prepared for crucifixion by sin's action upon his life. Verse 1, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and placed it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Jesus said to them, Excuse me, Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he he made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out 
and sat him on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramea, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Friends, as we work through this narrative in John chapter 19 today, I want to urge you, persuade you with all of my being to believe in Jesus for eternal life for four reasons that I purport are compelling for your life. You see, in Jesus' trial and the sentence of his death, first of all, we see what God is showing us about sin. And that's the first compelling reason to see the real and the full impact of sin upon our life. You see, so often sin has a way of working its wiles in us and on us without our being fully aware of it. But God in his mercy and grace reveals to us in the account of the death and crucifixion of his own son how it is that sin works its ways in life. The whole measure of sin is placed upon Jesus. Not just your sin, not just our sin, but all of sin for all times and all people is placed on Jesus The wrong and the injustice against Jesus magnifies for us sin's full impact on our life. And it shows to us how it works in our daily lives to destroy us. Sin's work can be seen in the actions that condemn Jesus. Would you walk briefly with me through these verses and let's look at the actions that were perpetrated towards and against Jesus and let us see how it is that sin's working upon us and in us works to deceive and to destroy us. First of all, we know this, that sin originates in and thrives on half-truths to birth its full effect. Pilate brought Jesus out and he said, behold the man. But that's only a half truth, friends. For the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth is this. Behold the man who is God. And John has shown this to us time and time again. And Jesus reminded the disciples in chapter 16 that it was his words that he gave, that he said he was God and he taught as God, but they denied him being God. And it was his works that he did, the miraculous signs that he gave to them to prove the truth of what he said. And yet, though they were amazed every time, they still managed to dismiss what was taking place. Jesus gave his words and he gave his works to prove the truth of who he was, that he was a man who had come as God. But Pilate introduces him only. As a man, a half-truth that conceives the sin that would entangle 
to deceive all of those in unbelief. You see, sin is conceived in this narrative in Pilate's unbelief. Sin is conceived in this narrative in the Pharisees' unbelief. And sin is conceived in this narrative in the unbelief of the people who were caught up in the leadership and the lie that it purported. And once caught in this web, sin entangles ever further and ever stronger upon us. And so sin originates and thrives on the half-truths in order to birth its full effect of what it is driving towards And from the very beginning, we see that sin tempts with a pleasure and a happiness, but what it leaves is only an abuse and a scar. Look at the way in which God shows us the sin of the people that promised so much to them, promised continued peace in the rule of Rome and happiness and freedom from this evil, vindictive, uh, uh, false teacher they claimed upon him, that it would give us freedom from him, but in fact of the matter, we see in verse 1, all sin does is it perpetrates abuse and leaves scars upon the Son of God. For it says, Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. We know from the historical narrative that the flogging with the cat of nine tails very likely brought Jesus closer to death than even crucifixion needed to. For as it took its ways and ripped into the skin and even into the muscle and even into the tendons to separate the muscle from the bones themselves. Jesus' physical representation was likely, many historians say, not recognizable by those who would have seen this and witnessed it. Grab hold of that image, friends. And the next time sin tempts you with pleasure and with happiness, remember what it's going to leave you with. For the pleasure and the happiness of sin is temporary, Hebrews tells us. It passes away. It does not last. The reasoning and the justification that makes sin okay in your mind and to your heart is also a dissipating reasoning and a removing justification that only is left to show the foolishness of what it conceived of to begin with. For sin's pleasure and sin's reasoning evaporates, leaving only the wounds of hurt And stripping away all hope from your life when you are subjected to it. Another thing that sin does is promises us a crown. It promises us a throne. And it provides for us supposedly royal treatment. But what we see here as God shows us the truth about sin is that it really only coronates with a crown of thorns that cut and wound and then it clothes us in shame. Verse 2, the soldiers are mocking Jesus and they give him a crown that pierces his brow so that blood begins to flow down from his head and then they wound him with their own hands striking him repeatedly and then they put upon him a robe that is colored to represent royalty but is nothing more than a mocking of his lowly position his shame 
Friends, any celebration and any accolade that is achieved in sin becomes nothing more than the wardrobe that you wear in its shame. For that's what sin does upon our life, just as it did upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And then sin promises to us that respect and that honor that you are most certainly due. But what it does to us is it embarrasses us by the mocking shame of its remarks. And we see that in verse 3. Hail, King of the Jews, as they mock him and deride him. You see, what sin does is it promises us that respect and that honor by providing a shortcut to it, a shortcut to fame, a shortcut to freedom, not going that long, hard path that seems impossible to begin with. But in that shortcut, we find that we only, as many have done, to find an identifying nickname, one in which the very sin seems to coronate us with, but rather only turns out to label us by. A scarlet letter of life emblazoned upon the heart because sin's promise was not what it began to be. It didn't provide the respect and the honor that it promised. As we move on, we know that sin demands an action based on the conclusions of the half-truth to rationalize its unbelief. In other words, as we see in this trial upon Jesus, who not only had never committed sin, but knew no sin in and of himself, that sin was, or that the sin that was being placed upon him propagated a foregone conclusion that was only inconvenienced by the facts of the case. It ignores any narrative that seeks truth and only demands the action of its own foregone conclusion. You see, sin thrives in immediacy. Sin thrives in impulse. But it only provides ultimate consequences. It's heightened by threat and it's heightened by fear in order to drive one to its own foregone conclusion. And it always serves sin's best, but it never allows for the time of consideration and the seeking of truth. Got to do it now. Got to get there. This is where we're headed. This is the rightful thing. Let's just go ahead and do it and be done with it and hurry up and get out of it. You see, all of that is serving sin in your life, not thwarting it. And sin is charging that immediacy and charging that impulse to go ahead and fulfill its foregone conclusion, lest truth shatter its darkness and expose the lie from which it deceives. Sin's promise of freedom, sin's promise of power and fame quickly turns, though, to a searing fear that swirls anxiety and brings unrelenting guilt within us. Look at verse 8. Leading up to that, they've said, crucify him. And Pilate said, you take him and crucify him. And the Jews said, we want nothing to do with this. We're good religious people. We don't need blood on our hands. For we're moral. It'd be immoral to kill an innocent man. Even we know that. We need you to kill him for us. They just didn't have the backbone to say that. But Pilate who realize at this point he is caught in sin's web of deception. 
And there is no win for him at this point. If he refuses to satisfy the voices of the Jews, then he will be condemned by them in an uproar and possibly dethroned by his own authorities. But if he kills this man, he will have killed an innocent man. Caught in his own trap, he runs back into Jesus in verse 8. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, it tells us. And he said to him, where are you from? Where are you from? Is he seeking truth? No, he's seeking a way out from sin's web that is woven by its lies. Once entangled in sin's lie, that's the only time it's fully exposed. And then, friends, it's too late. It's got you. There's no turning back from the trap of sin's deceit. Sin's voice of guilt and condemnation burns unrelenting until quenched and silenced in Jesus' death. Verse 6, the people cried, crucify him. He's innocent. Crucify him. But he's innocent. And all the more, with greater intensity, they cry out, don't let facts and truth get in the way. Crucify him. And that voice of condemnation would only be quenched and silenced when Jesus' death would come. Once Jesus was crucified, the people would then fall silent, caught in this realization that their voice has killed the innocent Son of God. You see, sin's lie also paints for us a mountaintop experience of exhilaration. But what it delivers is a deserted wasteland in life. And friends, where it is that you believe sin's lie such that you practice it or walk into it. And that might be habitually and it might be in individual occurrences. It's in each one. Where you believe sin's lie to practice or to walk in it, know that it is already working its deception in you just the same as it was In Pilate, in the Pharisees, and even the people who were only swayed by the deception under the leadership that they lived. Sin, friends, is the personification of evil. The personification of the evil one's being. The personification of our very nature. And it's lying to us that it might deceive us and condemn us. John 10.10 tells us the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. Every detail, friends, of Jesus' unjust trial and sentence magnifies sin's impact on life. And all of it is perpetrated against and put upon Jesus Himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us this. For our sake, he made him, in other words, God made Jesus, not just to know sin and not to do sin, but to become sin. 
He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, the first compelling reason that I urge you today to put your faith in Jesus and to repent of your sins is to see the real and the full impact of sin in and upon your life by what it did to Jesus in every detail of his trial and crucifixion. And then see this, see that Jesus takes the whole of sin upon his sinless being to bear it all for all. And that means he bore it for you. That's the first reason. A second reason you must believe in Jesus for eternal life. We find beginning in the second part of verse 16. Go back with me to the text. And let's look at the crucifixion itself. So they took Jesus, now verse 17, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with in him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them. I'm down in verse 23. Divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. 
The second witness, the second reason we see that every person must look upon Jesus and believe is this, to witness the final and the fatal blow that kills sin in God's death. Friends, that's what John is telling us here. He's giving us the narrative, but he's also giving us insight as to why he has scripted this narrative. You see, what happens is Jesus' trial reaches a stalemate. And that stalemate is the point at which no guilt is assessed of Jesus, nor is assigned to him, but the sentence of the full guilt is still placed upon him. It's interesting. This witness says, I find no guilt in him. This witness says, who cares? Kill him anyway. There's nothing of him or from him, but the guilt and the sentence of it is still placed upon him. Friends, listen, Jesus is crucified not for his sin, but for the sin of all that has been placed upon him. His innocence is critical for us here, for his innocence shows us that he died for someone else. And that someone else is for all who would place their faith in him. The interchange at Jesus' crucifixion reveals the deception and the guilt of all its participants. That's why Jesus said to Pilate, you would have no authority if I were not present, if it were not given you from above, and I did not lay down my life so that you could take it. But since that authority to take my life has been given to you, You bear the lesser guilt, they bear the greater. Those knowing, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, bear the greater guilt, though you are not without guilt because you have participated. That's what he's revealing to us here. You see, every word, every word that mocks Jesus, that labels him, that scorns him, and even those who grieve at the foot of his cross recognize his innocence in his death. And then Jesus pronounces his final teaching with these last words. It is finished. And friends, the most profound period in all of human history is placed at the end of that sentence. For no more is anything required of sin. It's done. It is finished. It is complete. It is final. Jesus demonstrates perfect love with his last breath. He blesses those who curse him. And he serves those who will kill him. Now dead, John says, that one more prophecy must be fulfilled. And so they didn't want to, shall we say, desecrate their holy day more than they already had nonetheless. They ask if the legs of the crucified people could be broken to expedite their death. And here we have professional executioners who are highly skilled and experienced at their craft who break the legs of one criminal on the one side and break the legs of the other criminal on the other side. But of the one in the middle, the Son of God, they say, there is no need to break his legs. He's already dead. Friends, don't miss that either. For death had not come to the other two 
because they were fighting for every ounce that they could get. Jesus had already laid his life down and given it up to the one who took it, the Father, through the hands of the Pharisees and Pilate. And so they thrust a spear into his side. One last final blow. That was not a fatal one. It was the exhaustion of sin's condemnation that had nothing else it could do except take one last shot at the only one it could lash out at. The Bible tells us this was done to fulfill the word of God. For Jesus bore the whole of sin's curse upon himself on the cross. He shows sin's wages as death as the Bible tells us. And he laid down his life to die for the unrighteous, yea, even his enemy. Jesus bore the whole of sin's curse, and that means, friends, he bore your curse on the cross. He bore your shame, he bore your guilt, and he bore your condemnation. Jesus, innocent from and innocent of all sin, died your death for sin, one died for all, the scriptures record. And I urge you today, not only to see the real and the full impact of sin upon your life, but to witness for yourself the final and the fatal blow that kills sin in God's death. Sin is no more. It holds no power over those who are in Jesus Christ because Jesus laid down his life to kill and to bury sin once for all in his own death. In the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, the Father is satisfied because sin is justified. And in Jesus Christ, there is no curse that remains upon us because sin is dead. And we are witnesses to these things through the writings that have been given to us. How is it that the lie perpetrated in the first portion of this chapter is confronted to reveal the truth? But John says, I saw it. I'm telling you the truth. I know it's the truth that I'm telling you. And I'm telling you the truth that you would believe the truth and know that what I have said is true. As we see, friends, only truth exposes the deception in the cover of a lie. And so we see, beginning in verse 38 and through, Jesus then, his body is removed from the cross, and Joseph of Arimathea comes, and he asks Pilate in secret for fear of what the Pharisees would do to him if they found out, can I take his body and bury it in my tomb? And Pilate gives him permission. He takes the body. And as he's preparing it, an interesting individual shows up, friends. Hear me. Not even religious entanglement is strong enough to keep you from the love of God. Nicodemus shows up to place spices on the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. That even in the dark deception of religion, the light pierces to bring hope if you will repent of religion and believe in Jesus for life. Jesus died 
And his death brings a great truth for those who believe in him. This is the third reason that I urge you to believe. To know you do not have to live under sin's condemnation. In Jesus' death, sin died in him. When he was buried, he carried sin into the grave with him. And friends, the grand tension at this point that the gospel grapples with for us to show us the battle that it is winning in our stead now becomes our own grappling in the moment of hearing the hope that sin and death are dead and buried with Jesus Christ. We do not have to live under them anymore. Know this, friend. There is nothing that you can do about your sin. You will not conquer it. You will not grapple with it and come out victorious. But sin is a slavery from which you cannot escape, a debt from which you cannot pay, a wrong you cannot right, and a condemnation that you cannot shake. But know this too, that there's only one thing you must do with your sin And that is to take it to the cross where Jesus died by faith and watch it die with him on his cross and be buried in his tomb. Believe in Jesus. Believe in his death on the cross. That in him God died for your sin and your debt, your slavery, your wrong and your condemnation that you can do nothing about can be removed by faith in Jesus Christ, but only in Jesus when you accept his death for your own as your death for your sin. You must, by faith, become like Jesus in his death, Paul tells us, in order to receive his eternal life. Friends, I appeal to you today to see the havoc and the damnation that sin wreaks and wrecks upon our life to know by witness of the things that are truthful that John has recorded for us, that Christ has grappled with that battle for you. You can't grapple with it, but you can know the freedom and the cleansing from sin that only he brings if you will trust in him. Know that you do not have to live under sin's condemnation. The guilt and the shame you carry will be removed because of Jesus. When he was buried, when his death, in his death, when death was buried with him, it remains in tune today because we know when Jesus walked out of the tomb, he was not carried. He brought life out with him and left death in there. And when you put your faith in Jesus, that's what happens to your sin. It dies with him so that you can live in him. The fourth reason that I urge you today to repent of your sins, put your trust in Jesus, is simply to believe, and you will receive eternal life by believing in Jesus. Chapter 20, the whole of the chapter records the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Friends, let me say this. This is not hyper-spiritualized wishes. This is historical fact and reality. It is divine in its power. It is real in its occurrence. 
And in this record, we see the ultimate victory over all sin, over all death, and over the grave. And here's what John tells us in verses 30 and 31 of chapter 20. He says that these things are written. I love that. I love that. He's talking about these things. He's talking about the whole of his gospel. He's he's winding it down and he's saying, everything I've written, I've written for this purpose. I love the song that reminds us, if... If we pinned about the love of God and drew from the water as our ink, we would drain the oceans of the earth before we would miss a beat on recollecting the glories of God's love to us. Drain the oceans dry because of God's love for us. That's what John is telling us here. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Every word that he penned, he's telling you, believe in Jesus, believe in him, receive the eternal life that comes only by his name. This record of Jesus as the Son of God is the good news of Jesus Christ and salvation from God because he is is the Christ from God, the one that has come from God and in whom every promise from God is yes and amen. That's why we believe Jesus is God's Savior whom he sent because he loved you to take away your sin. John wrote his gospel account so that you might hear and you might believe in Jesus. And when you believe, your sin is forgiven and removed, 1 John 1, 9, if we, are, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. His righteousness is credited to you. That man that died a completely innocent man, but a guilty death, he died your death so he could give you his life. And that's an innocent life. In the eyes of God's righteousness. You friends by faith in Jesus Christ. Receive from God. The righteous. Perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That you might live. An eternal life with God. Through Jesus. Jesus died as God. So those who believe in his name. Would receive eternal life. In him. Have you believed in Jesus? These are compelling reasons, friends. And I urge you today to believe for life.